with John, and then uh, then we'll dive into uh, a specific couple studies. I want to, just a couple themes I want us to look at. So, if someone could start us off by reading from John chapter ten, verse ten. John ten, verse ten. This is probably just in general one of my favorite verses from John, but he says, The thief comes to steal, but I have come, and Jesus is speaking, of course. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And so when we understand that life in the name of Jesus is, is a better life, it's a good life, it's, it's not just a heavenly reward, but it's actually a, it gives our life an abundant purpose now. And uh, regarding... Regarding the purpose of his book, I wanted to someone read for us uh, from chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And I think we read this when we started the Gospels, but we'll read it again from John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. So that you, these are written so that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So that's very tied to that that message that Jesus just gave us in John ten ten. But I also mentioned that because John is probably the latest gospel that was written. Just a quick sidebar: it was probably written a, a good ten twenty years at least after some of the other gospels. And again, if you just line it up side by side, Matthew and Luke seem to have this approach of I'm going to tell you as much about Jesus as I can find. Right, Matthew and Luke are pretty lengthy. Mark is known for his urgency. If, if you read uh, Mark in the New King James, I believe it is, uh, it's, it's not immediately. There's a specific phrase and it just escaped me. It, it talks about going quickly from one place to the next all throughout the gospel. There's an urgency through it. Uh, John is very purposed, and that's not to say the others are not. But he says, I, I know there's other things out there that you've heard, and there's other things out there that have been written. And he says, not everything Jesus did is written in this book, but I've selected a few of them. And I've chosen to put a few of them together so that you may believe, that you may know with confidence, that you might understand the facts, but that you might internalize and in your heart and soul commit yourself to these ideas, that Jesus is the Christ. We talked about what that title means last week, the anointed one, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so we've probably heard uh, many times that phrase in Acts where Peter says, Christ and Lord. This is very similar. He is Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, but he is also the Son of God. And so this, this expression uh, really emphasizes Jesus' humanity and his divinity. Uh, perhaps you've heard before that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he says, John says here, he is Christ, he is the anointed one of God, he is the, the servant, the prophet of the Old Testament who was to come, but he is himself also the son of God. He is divine. He has the, the presence of God abiding in him. And so he declares these things about Jesus, and he says that by believing you may have life in his name. And so I think that's pretty cool. He just straight up starts out. He says, I think if you read my gospel, you will come away with an understanding of who Jesus was and of what it means that he came to this earth. And so if we uh, look at the book of John, there's a couple different uh, ways to study the book of John. And I just want to review two of them and we'll, we'll kind of commit ourselves to one for our purpose this morning. Uh, but you, you can divide it up into 
kind of in half. The book of signs in the first half and the first uh, chapters running up till about chapter 12. And then from 12 to the end, what's called the book of glory. Um, and those are just kind of names, uh, commentators and stuff like that I've given to it. But, but they call it that because in, in the first 12 chapters, he gives seven signs. Seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus does. And, and they're very carefully chosen. Again, like I said, they're not... Uh, a couple of them are ones that are unique to John's gospel. Uh, other ones are things we've seen, like feeding the 5,000, but they're, they're portrayed a certain way. And so uh, the seven signs, just by the way, is the, the changing of water to wine in John 2, uh, the healing of the official son uh, in Capernaum at the end of John 4, John 4, 46 through 54, healing the paralytic at Bethsaida in chapter 5, feeding the 5,000 in John 6, walking on water in John 6, healing the man who is blind in John 9, and then raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And, and I just mentioned these. I know I'm kind of listing a lot of information at you, but I mentioned these because they, they show us different aspects of who Jesus was. If, if we look in, in Matthew, for example, we see Jesus healing uh, blind or lame people several times. We, we see this, this kind of as a regular occurrence in his ministry. But, but John accounts seven miracles, and they're all pretty distinct. It starts with just the water into wine. He, he heals the official son, and that's the significant account where, where he heals the, the son, even though the son's not actually with him, not directly in Jesus' presence. He hears to the paralytic. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He heals the man who is blind from birth outside the temple gates. And then this kind of culminates with the raising of Lazarus. And so we might understand why that would be the last sign Jesus does. Because in the, in the Gospel of John... Because following that, in the second half is what I said, that's called the Book of Glory. And that is where he begins his journey to Jerusalem. And of course, the, the Passion narrative begins. That Jesus is, he is tried, he is persecuted, um, he is crucified. And of course, he appears again in the resurrection to his disciples. So you can kind of break the Gospel of John into those two halves. Another big one, this is the one we're going to spend most of our time talking about this morning, is there is the seven I am statements of John. Um, if you do a, a study on the book of John, if you do either a class, or you pick up a class book, or you read like a study guide, it'll probably pick these one of two ways of looking at it, either the seven signs or the seven I am statements. Um, we know just from studying the Bible that seven is kind of a good representative whole number. It kind of symbolizes completeness or fullness. And so John very intentionally selects seven signs. And then I would argue just as intentionally, there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Now, why is this so significant? Well, you might recall uh, way back when we were looking at Exodus that when God said to Moses, and Moses said, who should I say sent you? God will say, I am who I am. As sort of a declaration of his identity. A big, big idea in the Gospel of John. And remember that when we studied Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we said they kind of had different purposes. Matthew really emphasized Jesus as the Messiah of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. Um, Mark talked about Jesus, and I don't even know if I really emphasized this as clearly as I would have liked to. But Mark, who was writing to the Romans, emphasized Jesus as the divine son of God, that, that Caesar was not the ultimate power on earth, that Pharaoh in Egypt was not the ultimate power on earth, but it was actually this man who was crucified. Jesus was the divine son of God. Uh, Luke, of course... Uh, Jesus as uh, this one who would gather all the nations to him, who would bring in the outcasts, who would bring in uh, the broken. You know, he was the one who could heal us, who has died for our sins, but can save us from our sins. Jesus is kind of a very much a savior figure. In John, John really emphasizes Jesus as both divinity and humanity. And I could probably go off for about 20 minutes as to why that is. 
Uh, but if that is something that really interests you and uh, early first century Gnosticism is just really fascinating to you, catch me afterwards. Otherwise, I'll, I'll kind of move on. But he, he really, the, the Christian community was kind of pulling both ways. There's the people who didn't meet Jesus, and they, so they said, oh, was he really human, or was he just an appearance of God? And then you had the people over here who maybe saw him, but maybe didn't see the crucifixion themselves, didn't see the ascension themselves, didn't see enough of the miracles, and so they said, well, it, he was probably just like those other prophets. You know, he was kind of just like Moses, or just like Elijah. There's no way he was really a divine son of God. And so when John writes his gospel, and in fact, if you go look at 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, this is echoed in those letters, we see that John really emphasizes both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Um, I believe it is, you know, I'm going to flip there rather than guessing. I've done a lot of speculating sometimes in my Bible study. Let's turn to 1 John real quick, because I, I want to show us something. This is from 1 John, uh, just the first, uh, again, same author. This is his letter that he writes to a uh, church later. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. So right there we see a lot of ties that we've already mentioned in the Gospel of John, right? What was the point of Jesus? He was the word that gives life. He says, that which we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, we have touched, we have experienced him with our, like our own senses, right? We saw him, we heard him, we, we, we touched him with our hands, he was real. Verse 2 says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was which the Father and was made manifest to us. So right there he declares... It was made manifest with the Father and is eternal life for us on earth. And so just in those couple verses, we see, we see kind of that emphasis of, of his humanity. He lived in the flesh. He walked among us. But he was sent from the Father. He, he is proclaiming what he has brought from the very beginning. Now, flip over to John 1. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about John 1, and then we'll get into those seven I am statements, because I, I think those will be a good little study for us the rest of our time. Someone read for us uh, John 1, verse 1 through 4, please. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So, I want to I dwell on this for a moment, because I want to say... Pretend if you don't. Pretend you know the Old Testament really, really well like the back of your hand. Hopefully we know it at least decently by now, right? So let's say we're really strong in the Old Testament, particularly the law. And if I read just that first verse, what, what is something you think of? What is something that comes to mind? What's something that jumps out at you? What are the first three words of John's Gospel? Anyone happen to know what the first three words of the Old Testament are? You think that's a coincidence? In fact, uh, just another little sidebar. So we call them things that are easy to say, like Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Uh, the Jews, the name of Genesis was Bereshi, which is Hebrew for in the beginning. This is the first few words of the book, and so that's what they called the book. Same thing with the, and their names for the next four books, same way. Whatever the first word of that book was, that's what they called it. And so not only did they know it, but they would have known very well, very, very well, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And, and that is a foundational statement, and I could go off on this. That is a foundational statement that changes everything. That, that the God we worship, uh, he, he's not just the God of the river. He's not just the God who comes up in a chariot on the sunrise. He's not just the God who is just the God over, like, say, the flowers of this ground. He said, no, 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 no. Our God in the beginning created every single thing you see and plenty of stuff that you don't. God created the heavens and the earth. Very declarative statement to begin a story in Genesis 1.1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he tells us right from the start that this, this thing that he is going to talk about, and we, we haven't got to the verse where he talks about what the Word is yet, but he says the Word was with God and the Word was God. He says, have no question in your mind, have no doubt that the person that we are about to describe was, is completely and fully God. He has all the aspects of divinity. He was, he was with God before the very beginning of time, before anything was. He was with God. And then he goes on to say, all things were made through him and without him not anything made that was made. I mean, if we just summed up all of Genesis 1 and 2 in one verse, that's a pretty good way of doing it, don't you think? <laughs> if we Say we didn't have time to get into all the days and the nights and the expanse and the, the ground and the trees and the plants and all this. We said, well, anything that was made was made through him, and without him, nothing was made. And so John applies the same statement to this, this person he's going to talk about. And so the first declaration, fully divine, was with God. Not only was he with God, he was in the beginning with God. So he's been around forever. And then third, he was a part of creation from the very beginning and is responsible for all things. And then here, in him was life. There's a few verses that I underline and that I think you can notice that I, I have seen this in John probably more than any other, any other Gospels. There's repeated phrases and ideas that kind of build as the, as the book goes on. And one of them is just this idea of what does life mean? And I think, I don't know if there's maybe a more important question that men have asked of themselves since the beginning of time. Right? You wake up in the morning and you go, what does all this mean? Sometime when you're maybe 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you start thinking, why am I going to school? Why am I getting up in the morning? Well, what am I going to do when I'm done with school? Well, you might go to more school or you might go to get a job. It's a lot like school. You just keep going until uh, and that's it, <laughs> until they tell you to go home. And so what does that all mean? Why do I do all that? And John, kind of, he never says the meaning of life is this, but over and over he says, Jesus did this and it was life. And he says, the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And he talks a little bit about John the Baptist uh, for a few verses there. He says he witnesses about the light. He was not the light, but he cared to bear witness about him. But if we look down to verse 14... Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Somewhat ironically to sort of the holiday season, I guess. John is the one account that does not, or John and Mark do not give us a birth account of Jesus like Matthew and Luke do. Luke gives us the longest. Luke talks about, right, talks about Jesus as a baby. He talks about uh, uh, John the Baptist as a baby and their mothers, and we have the Magnificat and all these great moments. Matthew just kind of gives us a Herod trying to kill him and chasing him into Egypt. Mark just starts right away with Jesus' ministry. John takes a very different approach. He goes further back and then tells us less but more at the same time. 
He says, ah, I'm not going to really worry you with the town he was born in. The manger scene was nice, but I got, I got a bigger story to tell. He says, I, w- I just want you to know that he was with God. He made all things. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so he declares that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human, which is very, like I said, a pretty great theological importance. Because he was, he was real. His suffering was real. His suffering wasn't an illusion. When, when we read of Jesus going to the wilderness and being tempted, um, it's not just sort of this illusion or apparition or appearance of God, right? That he, he got tired. He was on the boat. He was going from place to place. He gets tired. He falls asleep. And they're trying to wake him up because they're scared for their life because of the storm. He was hungry, so he had to stop and eat. Like He, he felt human things. And that's of pretty significant importance. But obviously, his death and his statements mean nothing if what he says about himself is not true, that he was the Son of God. And so John declares these two things that are of pretty great importance. And I'm sure we don't just sit around thinking a lot about Jesus' divinity and humanity. Like I said, it gets off into some deep theological waters. But it is, it is really significant to what we believe that we understand both of these things. Uh, we're gonna we're about to like I said we'll spend the rest of our time looking at the seven I am statements. But any thoughts, questions, comments on just what we've laid out in the book of John so far? This morning I was listening to the GMT program, and I think the question was sent in: Was Jesus uh, did he have the powers and the knowledge when he was born? Mm. And they answered no, that he did not. So that is a really interesting discussion. Um, I'm flipping to Philippians because I know it's in there. But there's that phrase where Paul describes Jesus as coming to earth and emptying himself. And that is a pretty significant one. And that would lead to what you're talking about. That there were certain things he gave up. But my, my kind of counter to that would be, but I mean, he still performed miracles. When they were sitting at the Last Supper, he said, one of you will betray me. And he knew at the time it was Judas. He, he, it says, for he knows men's hearts. They said that he didn't perform any miracles until the Spirit Oh, until the Spirit? Okay, yes, I see what you're saying. Yes, I, I have heard that before, and I would say that makes a lot of sense. Um, because Jesus is... Uh, there's two pretty significant moments. The baptism, where obviously the son, the, the spirit descends on him like a dove. The father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Very significant moment. The other, I would say, is on the mountain when he is transfigured. Because that gives us this idea that Jesus says, if, if I just sort of took the reins off, this is what it would be like to be in my presence walking around all the time. And we see that, that, that James and John and, and Peter are just blinded. Like they can't even look at him, which, which really fits well with some of the descriptions of God and Moses and, and Elijah where they can't look at God. He has to put the veil over his face. No one can see God and live. That, that, the, that the presence and the glory and the weight of God is just too majestic to behold. And so on the mountain, Jesus also just hints to his disciples, really like this is what it would look like a little bit if God came to earth, if I took the filters off a little bit. But understand that when I'm just walking around you guys, we, we kind of have to tone it down. <laughs> he said, you, you just be, people just be falling over in the streets everywhere. It'd be chaos. Um, so I, I would say those two things would testify to that. From that moment on, he knew things. He performed miracles. He, he did miraculous, divine, supernatural things. And 
and he reveals that he's kind of got, that he's saying, you know, you're only seeing like a tenth or a one percent of what I can do or what my glory is. Which, again, we could go into a whole Old Testament thing on the glory and the weight of God and the majesty. But that moment very much testifies to, yes, that, that he had a, a majesty and a glory that not only was unique to God in the Old Testament, but that the disciples just could not have bared if, if he really let that be that way. And so there's the, the emptying that happens, I would say, when he's born and growing up. And I would agree with that conclusion until the Spirit descends upon him. But I would take it a step further and say, not just the emptying, but there's clearly kind of a restraining that, that Jesus himself is in control of. That, that, he's, that he says, you know, I've got to tone it down around you guys because the glory of God is just too powerful for, for men to dwell on earth. Um, yeah, I, I go a lot on the glory thing, but we'll, I think we'll move on. <laughs> That's a good question, though. This is an excellent point. Any other thoughts or comments from the, the Gospel of John so far? Just talking about the first chapter and verses 1 through 4 and then verse 14 talking about his divinity and then talking about his humanity and leaving heaven and coming and taking on flesh. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of salvation implications. Mm. You know, think about him being the chief meat, the chief priest, the, the perfect mediator, the perfect propitiation, because only... <laughs> Uh, divine blood would would erase sin forever, uh, and he's the perfect chief mediator because he has walked among us. He knows our temptations, and so you know, being both fully God and both fully human, that you know, there's there's just so much packed into those those verses as far as implication towards salvation and what he did for us and, and the, the whole plan of salvation. Absolutely, because if he, I would argue without getting off into, again, uh, sketchy theological waters, but I think you could make the point that if, if he is not both of those things, it just doesn't really mean what it means. And again, I, I could, um, we could plumb these theological waters because these are pretty deep concepts, and um, I don't know about you guys, but when I went to school, I was a very practical person. If I had to learn something, I really wanted to know why I had to learn it. <laughs> Otherwise, it just didn't, it didn't stick with me. And sometimes these theological concepts seem uh, kind of hard, you know, like what does that have to do with my life? How does that tie to today? Uh, but, but they're worth exploring a little bit. It's important to understand stuff like this, I think, especially when we talk about moving on from milk and into the meat and things like that and spiritual maturity. So it's important to kind of understand the, the things behind the scenes as to why we believe what we believe. Good point. All right, well, if, uh, there's nothing else. We'll go ahead and move on. Like I said, there's seven of them. Um, we'll probably get to all of them today because we're not going to spend a ton of time on each one. I just kind of want to throw them out there and see what we think about them. Uh, the first one comes from John chapter 6. If someone would read for us John chapter 6, and we will say from verse 32 through 35. John 6, 32 through 35. <clears throat> Thank you, sir. So, that, that first I am statement, he says, I am the bread of life. 
again, we talked about right away that life, eternal life, abundant life, big recurring theme in the Gospel of John. But what does it mean to you, or how do you understand this verse, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life? We look at those couple verses there. What's the, what is he talking about when he says that the bread from heaven? You remember the manna, the manna of the Old Testament. So, so he's very intentionally evoking, again, another Old Testament story. The manna came from heaven. The Israelites were wandering around the wilderness. And what do they do? They wake up every day, and God is putting food literally on the ground for them to gather up and take. And there was a lot of restrictions on how they should gather the manna, right? They had to do it every day, but didn't gather up except on the Sabbath. And, and the people kind of complained at times. They were like, at one point they said, ah, oh, we wish we were back in Egypt and in slavery. And Moses has this, I would say I come to Jesus meeting, but I guess I come to God meeting about what it is that God is doing among them. And he says, God is providing for us, even though we are in the wilderness. Like we're not, we're not in the promised land. He has, he has rescued us and he is going to provide for us. And Jesus says he gave you bread from the... And Jesus is kind of making a pun in the sense that he says, He gave you this bread from sky. I can give you bread that is truly from heaven, that is truly heavenly, that is truly spiritual, that is truly eternal. And he says, for, in verse 33, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In John, we also have probably the most explicit description of communion. Because I believe it is in John where Jesus says, This is my body broken for you. Eat and, uh, eat and drink. And, and it almost seems graphic if, if we're not familiar with that concept, to be honest. But, but he says explicitly, This is my body broken for you. While they're, they're breaking bread, I mean, to share bread, you have to break it, Right? And so they pass down, they're breaking bread together. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And so there's this very powerful symbol of Jesus as the bread that is broken for us. He says his body broken on the cross, crucified. But when we break bread together, we remember that because he is the bread of life. So he, is, he was broken for us, but also he is the, the sustenance of life. To, 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 to eat on the words of Jesus, to feast on the words and the teachings of Jesus gives true Life, which is why that verse in 35 says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so that is to say that a knowledge of Jesus and an understanding of him is something that surpasses all earthly needs, all human needs. So let's keep going. Like I said, we got seven of these things. So we'll keep going. Come to the chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, someone, yeah, someone read for us. Yeah, we'll just read chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And I'm going to read the, a couple extra verses. I'm sitting here looking at this. Uh, if we look at verse 13. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, and I, and I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. And he, and he goes off to kind of accuse them of not really knowing the Father, not really knowing the, the one who sent him, not really understanding the, the words and the laws and all these things. 
But he says, I bear witness about myself and my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I am going. Uh, verse 13, the Pharisees kind of, they throw a legal thing at him. They say, well, how can you, you can't be a legal witness for yourself, right? I can't speak in defense of myself. I can't give myself my, I can't be my own alibi, right? And they say, you can't just give witness about yourself. And he says, yes, I can, one, because what I have to say is true. But I know where I came from, which we know from John is, is from the Father, from heaven. And I know where I am going, which I would say is a reference to both the crucifixion and his ascension back to heaven. And so he says, what, what I'm saying about myself is true. And what I am saying is true because of those two things, because of where I've come from and where I'm going. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, if we kind of go back to that idea of humanity and divinity, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he says, if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, which we can think of in two different ways. One, uh, just if we go back to all of the books that talk about the wisdom of God, right? Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom that is found in God's teachings. Jesus says, if you follow me, you'll be able to see where you're going. <laughs> if you're following me through the wilderness of life, you'll be able to see where you are going. You will have direction. You will have purpose. But also, and this is where, again, I, I want to kind of flip a little bit and look at some of the other writings of John. Because I think when he writes on these same concepts, it can help kind of fill out what, we, what he means, what he's saying. In 1 John, he talks about walking in the light. And listen to this in 1 John 1, verse 7. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And that's in a greater uh, section about sin and darkness and light and righteousness and what it means to be cleansed of our sins. But he says, This is the message we have heard, that God is light and in him is no darkness. And it's this idea that if we have fellowship with him and we are, we are walking in the light. And so when we think of, when we talk about how at baptism we're cleansed of our sins kind of both forward and backwards, uh, something I go to with people is this passage about walking in the light. That as long as we are walking in the light, we have fellowship with him and his blood cleanses us from sin. That's 1 John 1.7. And so to have fellowship with him, I mean, we could think of the million implications of that, right? We're following him. We're obeying him. We're, to, to have fellowship with Christ certainly means to have fellowship with his body. And so he says, as long as you are walking in the light, his blood continues to cleanse us of sin. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, we think, well, his, his words give us wisdom, right? The psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It guides us in where we're going as we go throughout life. But it also, very importantly, it cleanses us of sin. We are walking in the light. We have confidence that we are cleansed of sin. So when we are obedient to Jesus' teachings, we can have confidence that we are, not that we are sinless, but that when we sin, his blood continually cleanses us of those sins. And so Jesus says he is the light of the world, dispelling sin and dispelling ignorance. Now let's keep going. We'll go flip over to John 10. John 10 has two of them, and they're pretty important. Someone read for us John 10, 7 through 9. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out in and out and find pasture. Who wants to tackle what that might mean in just sort of cornbread language for us? 
What does Jesus mean when he says, I am the door? Truth and the way? And what did you say? The only way in. You said the truth and the way? That's the first thing I thought when I read this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you enter through me. Why? Because I am the door. And he gives this uh, kind of agrarian analogy. He says, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to him. And this feeds really into his next analogy, uh, which I'll read a couple of verses for us. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. We're going to read the rest of that verse in just a moment. But he says, um, we know this analogy of God's people as flock goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, in fact, we could, the prophets speak about God himself, about the Lord being the good shepherd. If, and then if we think of David, what was David doing before David was anointed by God? He was literally in there tending to the sheep. He was tending to the flock. And so this idea of, of the leader of God's people, of God's voice, being a shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And in fact, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So in Matthew, we, we talked about how working towards the end of the gospel, over and over, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be killed and suffered many things. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer, kill, and suffer many things. And the disciples are always confused. They never really seem to pick up on this. Jesus doesn't always give it that directly. Here he really gives this kind of this hint. And he says, if I was a hired hand... When the wolves came to attack me, I would run. Because again, if you're in a pasture and you're a hired hand, you don't own the sheep. You think, I don't get paid enough for this. I ain't killing that wolf. I'm out of here. Because if the sheep are yours, if the sheep are your lifeblood, if the sheep are your livelihood, you, you fight to the death for those sheep. You fight to the death for, for, the, for the cattle, for that flock, for that livestock, because that is your livelihood. And when Jesus came to be attacked by wolves, what happened? He didn't turn and run. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. You know, I kind of thought it was awfully ambitious to tackle seven verses in one class, but he says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Big, big idea from the Gospel of John. But he also says, I am the good shepherd, which means the true sheep know the voice of the shepherd. They follow him. They listen to his voice. And so there's really two right here in chapter 10. Um, so far we've looked at I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. And here in this, ten, in this chapter 10, he says, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. And those, those are two distinct kind of symbols. That the door, very similar to that idea of being the way, the truth, the life. We, we enter through him. But and he is the good shepherd. He is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. We'll look at one more. We'll kind of introduce it and uh, ch chat about it a little bit because this is pretty straightforward. We talked about how if, if we looked at John as kind of that first half, second half, the book of signs, the book of glory, Jesus does all the miracles, and then he himself uh, is, is persecuted, crucified, resurrected. Kind of he is the miracle. That, that all hinges right here around chapter 11. Chapter 11 is, of course, the death of, the death of Lazarus. And they're mourning. 
And in fact, Martha says to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And uh, man, if we were in a deep study of the Gospel of John, I would really want to look at that when we talk about the humanity of Jesus. Because even his closest followers, those who loved him, felt very real human emotions. And they said, if you had been here sooner, I've seen you heal people. If you had been here sooner, he would not have died. Like that shows a great, a great deep level of grief in Martha, even though she understands who Jesus was in part. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So again, going back to the Old Testament, the Jews understood the resurrection of the dead. They understood God's people would be resurrected in the next life. And so Martha says, well, Jesus says, no, you'll see him again. And Martha says, well, I know I'll see him again in the resurrection. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And this is very important because this, this actually happens before Jesus goes out and he calls Lazarus out and he, and, he, and he does kind of the miracle of raising Lazarus. But he, he squeezes in there this very significant teaching. And he says, do you believe this? And again, just a moment ago, she said, well, if you had been here sooner, he would have lived. So she certainly believed he had the power to heal. She had never conceived that he had the possibility to raise the dead. And so he says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are, what is it, that same phrase, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the same phrase we read from chapter 20, who is coming into the world. And so in the verses that follow, Jesus goes out to the tomb, and of course he, he calls out Lazarus, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and the reason uh, the, the book kind of pivots at this point, talking about the miracles going to the working towards now the persecution, is because at the, at the end of the chapter, from verse 45 to verse 56, we see that from now on the, the Jews plotted against Jesus. And uh, we'll talk more about chapter 11 and that major shift in the Gospel of John next week. Uh, but thank you guys, and I'll see you all all next time.